leave Bastion behind, we reflect on the 13-year campaign. An enormous sacrifice along the way. British troops who've given their lives for the chance of a safer and more secure Afghanistan. The military covenant, is it really working? And three and a half centuries on, we join in the birthday celebrations for the Royal Marines. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. The last UK base in Afghanistan has been handed over to the control of Afghan security forces, ending British combat operations in the country. The Union flag was lowered at Camp Bastion, while Camp Leatherneck, the adjoining US base, was also handed over to Afghan control. David Cameron said Britain would never forget those who had died serving their country. The number of deaths of British troops throughout the conflict stands at 453. Our reporter James Hurst spoke this week to the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon. I think our troops are leaving with their heads held high. The end of a very long campaign, eight years in Helmand, 13 years involvement in military operations across the uh, country, um, but a job really well done. Now, an enormous sacrifice along the way. British troops who've given their lives for the chance of a safer and more secure Afghanistan. Have we really left a, a, a positive legacy in Helmand? Yes, a country that's in better shape than it was when we arrived. Some uh, eight, eight, seven million people in school now, uh, girls attending school for the first time, access to health care, roads and the kind of things that we take for granted in this country. Nearly half of all Afghans have a mobile phone, for example. Now, of course, there are problems that remain. Uh, the government has to tackle poppy production. And, of course, the Taliban haven't completely gone away. But what we've left is behind is an Afghan army, which we've helped to train, over 300,000 strong, that is now taking responsibility for its security and doing the hard fighting. Where Taliban move into a village, it's the Afghan army who've been going there and moving them out. For those who have served in Helmand, whose lives have perhaps been changed forever, who may have lost a good friend, to those who've lost a, a partner or a parent. Can you look them in the eye and tell them it really has been worth it? Yes, it's certainly been worthwhile. Of course, it's been a, a sacrifice. There have been uh, uh, losses of life. There have been life-changing injuries to numbers of our troops. But yes, the, the mission to uh, Afghanistan and to keep the peace in Helmand has certainly been worthwhile. What we've done is given Afghanistan the chance now of a much more uh, stable and safer future. Defence Secretary there, Michael Fallon, speaking to our reporter, James Hurst. But many are critical of Britain's campaign in Afghanistan. I'm joined, as usual, in the studio here by our defence analyst, analyst, that's Christopher Lee. Also with us throughout today's programme is the former Royal Marines Commander, Major General Julian Thompson. Julian, welcome. Let's start by coming to you. The Defence Secretary there said we'd achieved a great deal and we leave Afghanistan as a better country than when we arrived there. Do you agree? Yes, I, th I do agree. Uh, because it was chaotic when we got there in 2001. People forget we got there in 2001 with the, the Taliban uh, in charge and so forth. We kicked them out. And so it is better. But you've got to ask me this question again in five years' time mm. because the real test will be whether what we've left behind is enduring. Uh, 
And that is the point, as, as British troops got on that plane, left Bastion and flew out. It coincided with various documentaries on the television showing the Taliban running large swathes of the country. And the question has got to be, is it sustainable what we've achieved? I think it is, provided, and of course it's entirely up to the Afghans whether it's sustainable, provided the army does its job properly and provided the police do it, does its job properly. And yes, the Taliban are there. But part of it, the Taliban are actually, not actually Taliban, they are tribal leaders who are trying to push a particular agenda. So it's a far more complicated picture. It's a tapestry of various competing tribal leaders and so forth. It's not just us and them, black hats and white hats. That's the point, and that's certainly something we've learned from this conflict. I think we assumed we went in thinking there's the Taliban, an entity, but it's much broader than that. What else have we learned, though, Julian? I think we've learned how difficult it is to operate in a country where you don't speak the language. We had trouble enough in Northern Ireland, went on for 30 years, and that was nothing like as bad uh, as Afghanistan ever, but at least we spoke the same language. Where you've got to try and engage with people you must be able to speak their language. You've also got to understand the tribal and local problems that they all have. Yes, I mean, the, the cultural side of things, Christopher, is, is a major issue because I don't think we grasped that when we went in. We may have a better understanding of it now. But let's go back to when we did go in. Remind us of, of how it happened. Think of 9-11. 9-11 is the sort of start of the whole concept, the Western concept, of how you fight a war. You're fighting a different enemy. You're not state to state, Cold War, all finished. Um, and also you have to look at, and we didn't look at the, at the beginning, uh, uh, of what Afghanistan was really about. And it adds to what Julian's saying. Remember the solution to Afghanistan's problems is a regional problem. Mm. You've got to look at Pakistan, what they're thinking about it, and that's a failed state almost. You've got to see what the Indian uh, relationship with, with Pakistan, with, 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 with uh, Iran as well, and also with China. So it's that the size of the problem. We went in because we were still um, open to the idea that this was the only way to stop terrorism, <clears throat> to stop the training of terrorists, Al-Qaeda, for example, uh, not just we're going into sort of eyeball, uh, Taliban. And we had a, a, a huge historical tradition of actually doing this. I mean, the mm. British have been in India and Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, we had a governor of Afghanistan back in the 1830s. We, the British, actually planted the first poppy crops in Helmand. We thought it was a very good idea. The farmer did the, uh, the poppy. We taxed him. We got our taxes back. We start the uh, the, the, the opium wars in China. But that's our involvement. We, we, we thought that way. Um, what was the most important part of it, of course, is that we, we said to ourselves, we will follow America, we will follow NATO, we will go for this new, uh, this new enemy, and that is the place we will fight it. That's, what, that's our chosen battlefield. And that was different from anything we'd ever done. An appointment to beat terrorism, you could describe it as. But, I mean, has that concept, that notion of taking the battle to a country to defeat a terrorist entity. That's been debunked, surely, because terrorism has flourished in the Arab world. Uh, yes, but we're still thinking that in spite of the fact that we say, look, we're never going to get into another war like that. Go and talk in Whitehall to the, general, to the generals and you talk to the politicians. No, we don't do big wars like this. Uh, and yet um, the uh, British Special Forces have been training with American Special Forces in Tucson, Arizona, training to do boots on the ground in Iraq again, mm. uh, to do boots on the ground, if necessary, in, in Syria. We still can't get out of the responsibility that we may always have to go back if we still believe that it's a threat, a threat 
to the United Kingdom directly. And that is why when Julian says, when the Secretary of State says, you've got to remember that it may be a war, a conflict that was debunked by saying we haven't got enough helicopters, we've mm. got the wrong instruments and got the wrong weapons, etc., etc. Um, I'm not sure, Julian, the guys the, in the forces have never had the right weapons. They did a remarkable, I think, a remarkable job uh, in a period of 10 years. The thing is, it's not yet finished, and that's the important bit. And the point is, it'll always be a come-as-you-are party. Yes. Because when the whistle blows, you've got to go with what you've got. And it's quite wrong to imagine you will necessarily have the perfect stuff. And even when you get the perfect stuff, the opposition thinks too. They think, ah, we can defeat that if we do that. So you'll never, ever, ever have perfect armour, perfect vehicles, and it'll never be a risk-free performance, ever. Let's move on to hear from somebody. You mentioned the Special Forces there yourself, uh, Christopher. Richard Williams was a former SAS commander. He's written a piece in The Times this week which was extremely critical of Britain's campaign in Afghanistan. He's even called for a, a Chilcot-style inquiry on it. Um, Chris Whitehead spoke to him a little earlier and asked him what mistakes were made. What was wrong about it for us was not its purpose, uh, which in terms of removing the Taliban such that Afghanistan couldn't become... Uh, an al-Qaeda stronghold over the long term was right. Um, what went wrong with it was how we planned it and how we conducted. In simple, how we led it uh, on the military side, not the political side. So you think we went in for the right reasons? Yes, I do. Uh, I think post 9-11 uh, it was clear that Afghanistan was going to continue to be, um, because of its um, protection for al-Qaeda a threat to the world uh, and the Taliban regime which actually didn't have complete control of Afghanistan at that time the civil war effectively was still going on uh, needed to be changed so I think that was right. So you said you, you think it was badly managed, what do you mean by that? Well the specifics and I referred to it in uh, one's newspaper piece was that by 2005 it was judged to be essential that Britain went down to Helmand to take over the provincial reconstruction team tasks down there. And in doing that, it did a review of the situation uh, and considered that conducting an operation that was under-resourced in terms of development aid and very limited in terms of what it could do would be sustainable. And then secondly, when the operation started, the command and control systems that were put in place weren't such to control the operation to ensure that it didn't escalate beyond the position at which we could control or we could resource. Now you're calling for what you refer to in your, your piece in the Times as a Chilcot-style inquiry. Do you think realistically that that will happen? I, I think it could do and I think there are precedents for it. What we're looking at here is not an inquiry into um, whether an individual or, or a group of individuals made a mistake but whether our command system is correctly configured to run operations like this going forward. Because at the moment, I detect that the political class and quite a lot of the country don't trust the utility of force, by which I mean deploying the army into places like Iraq and Afghanistan ever again. And so we've got to restore that trust and have a good look at what we can do uh, to develop uh, systems that can do it better next time. And specifically, after the Boer War, Lord Isha, at the direction of a Liberal government, did an investigation into the conduct of the Boer War by the British Army. And as a result of that investigation, 
there were adjustments to the way in which the British military were run, which gave us the most effective army by 1914 in the European theatre. The Americans did the same after Vietnam, and American special operations did the same after the failure to rescue their hostages in Tehran. So this is quite normal, and I just suggest it should be done. Uh, Christopher and Julian, strong words there from Richard Williams. Um, does he have an, a point, Julian? I think he has. Um, I think that two things I'd like to pick up. One is his business of the command structure. I mean, it's absolutely crazy that we change brigades every six months. Mm. I mean, in Northern Ireland, you had one brigade headquarters, so you had a brigade that arrived brand new. They wanted to make their mark, uh, wanted to do their thing, all had a different approach, so you don't have a seamless approach to the idea of how you run this war. And secondly... Uh, originally, the whole purpose of going in, into Helmand was to look after Lashnagar and the area around it. And then we uh, allowed ourselves to be bullied, almost, I use that word advisedly, by the provincial governor into spreading our task over the thing without the right number of troops. And in my opinion, ministers and senior officers were, were, di were, were lacking in their duty in, in supporting uh, Ed Butler and making him carry out a task for which he was not resourced. Christopher. Brigadier Ed Butler has had right fanging at the top end of Army Command. It's all messy the same, right, we'll put this one on him. I'm not sure that I, I would go for a Chilcot inquiry. In present Chilcot inquiry, was set up in two, 2009, mm. by the way, and it's not going to report until after the election, probably. But more and of so a hot debrief style. Well, you see, that has actually taken place. Yeah. I think far more, and I'm surprised that... Uh, Colonel Williams doesn't understand this, far more has been understood and put in place and restructured, largely thanks to the efforts of the recently retired David Richards, who was then uh, Chief of the Defence Staff. Um, but there are certain things that come out quite clearly. Don't forget, we, we start off by saying we go to Afghanistan that way in 2001 and then more strongly in 2006, mm. right? We've got a 2003 Iraq war in the middle of that. Yes. You see? Um... What we have learned is that you can't do two types of wars at the same time. We don't have the structure, we don't have... Uh, and when I say structure, um, I'm talking about the types of troops that you can deploy. That is not an armoured warfare, for example, uh, anymore, or mm. the armoured... Uh, armour now is sort of a Apache helicopter or, or whatever. So you can't do two wars at the same time. What you can do is short uh, systemic deployments, and that's what the army is looking to be now. Still to come, criticism of the military covenant. Is it actually working? And we look back at 350 years of the Royal Marines. OK, let's take a look at some of the other stories making the news this week. Christopher, um, reservists. CGS has said this week the reservists should only be used in worst-case scenarios. That's a bit of a change, isn't it? Uh, well, it won't be for the for the reservists, I think, that anyway. Um, but no, I think what we're going to get towards is uh, is going to have to rethink. You know the reservists, you're going to recruit 15,000, you can bring them up to 30,000. It's not going to work. It is not working. Uh, and therefore, they're going to have to rethink what they use a reservist for. And so you have them as specialists, like linguists. Julian was talking about not having linguists before. Do that sort of thing with them, and that's going to be a complete restructure of it. And that's going to be very important for the future shape of the British Army. Is this the first sign that the top brass are recognising that viewpoint and, and moving on it? Well, I, th I think that the, the idea that you could just go out and say, right, we want more reservists, uh, and so do come and join us, was daft. 
because nobody thought, thought through all sorts of things like, uh, you know, it was all right having a guy you sent him off for a weekend's camp or, or, or whatever, drive a, a vehicle up and down the M11. But, you know, six months away in Afghanistan, mm. then bringing him back into the company and saying, well, now what do we do, do for you? And also people are starting to think as reservists themselves uh, that might be the case. So I think it's going to have a complete rethought on, 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 on deploying reservists and actually what reservists is for. Okay, let's move on to the military covenant. The government's been told it must do more to support the mental health of servicemen and women by an influential group of MPs. The Commons Defence Committee has been investigating how the Armed Forces Covenant is working for military casualties. Meanwhile, medical experts treating military veterans say the government is failing to give them all the care they've been promised. The military covenant enshrined in law three years ago is a promise, a bond really, between the state and the armed forces that all those who have served their country and have been injured will be given priority treatment. But this week, two senior figures have said that simply isn't happening. The BBC's Seema Katicha reports. As the final British troops left Afghanistan this week, those who've been injured are asking, will the UK government remain committed to its veterans? Uh, I was hit by a sniper. The bullet entered my left cheek between the eye and the nose and exited my right cheek between the sort of nose and the ear. Simon Brown, a former corporal, was medically discharged from the army four years ago after being shot in the face in Iraq. My cheekbones were obliterated. My jaw was broken in four places. I'd lost my left eye totally and there was very little hope of any sight returning to my right eye. As a veteran, he's entitled to priority health care. But he says getting seen on the NHS has been a struggle. It has been long processes. There's been a lot of jumping through hoops, you know. Uh, I actually had to, had to go in front of a committee to see whether or not I was entitled to free plastic surgery. The military covenant is described by the government as a duty of care to the armed forces. It states that soldiers will be asked to make the ultimate sacrifice, but in return they will be sustained and rewarded. And the moral obligation shouldn't stop when service ends. It says the veterans should receive priority health care from the NHS when they're being treated for a condition dating from their time in uniform. you got this one. He's shooting the ground in front of him. Adjust his point of fire. More than 200,000 men and women have been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001. Freedom of information figures provided by the Ministry of Defence show that almost 13,000 service personnel were medically discharged because of musculoskeletal problems, such as losing their limbs or suffering damage to their joints and tissues. Some will need medical help for the rest of their lives. Professor Tim Briggs is a leading orthopaedic surgeon and says he's talking to ministers about how the NHS can be improved. He recently wrote the Shavas report, which outlines the problems former personnel are facing in the system. I was seeing these veterans come into my clinics. I was moved by what the sacrifices they'd made and some of their injuries and realised that we can do better and we should do better. The military charity Help for Heroes estimates that tens of thousands of service personnel could suffer mentally and physically as a result of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's now calling for a government database that records the details of all veterans. With some NHS staff unaware of the covenant, the charity believes it will help veterans to get the care they are entitled to. Earlier this year, the then-chair of the Defence Select Committee said it was disappointing that the government kept details of sheep and cows, but couldn't do the same for veterans. 
Seema Katicha reporting there from the BBC on the military covenant. Uh, covenant. Julian Christopher, um, your thoughts on this concept of covenant, and Julian, is it working? It's not working, and it, it will never work in the form it is, because people just don't take it seriously. I mean, Why not? Well, because they don't understand what it is, and it's, and it's unenforceable. And, of course, the real root of it is that our government, in whatever party they belong to, never really take ex-servicemen seriously in the way the Americans do. And the real way to do this is to, is to do what the Americans, and, in fact, the Germans do, instead of relying totally, or almost totally, on charities... And, and really, what happens is, is that the British get their uh, forces on the cheap, actually, because they don't, when they leave, uh, have any sort of rights as they do in, in America, and it's all done by, by charities. I tell you, the covenant is a political, not even a political slogan. It's not even worth calling it a political slogan. It means almost nothing at all, because no slogan, no headline, no name means anything unless other people know what it is. So when you, for example, take a soldier in need into a system of, say, the NHS, the consultant doesn't know about the covenant. He doesn't know what he has to do about the covenant. He doesn't know if he has to give priorities or not. And that's one part of it. The second part of it is the general public. As we've now out of Afghanistan, as we're doing far less, as there's going to be a greater stretch on other budgets which means that the defence budget, people are going to say, look, hang on, we're not fighting a war, why do we need it so much? Organisations like Help for Heroes, etc., are going to find it very hard, going to be hard-pushed, because it, it's a factor that really started, it sounds a terribly a tragic thing to say, it started when Wooden Bassett stopped. People could not see the Wooden Bassett effect, if you know what I mean mm. by that. And I think that people are not going to have that same feeling towards the military as time goes by of having been out of major operations. It's visibility, isn't it? And that is the Iraq War, but particularly the Afghan campaign and, as you say, Wooden Bassett, but all the other, you know, parades, homecoming parades and so forth did bring that visibility. I mean, in defence of the Covenant, is it not a good try at this? Yeah, it's a good try, but as, as, as Christopher said, it doesn't mean anything because it's, it's a sort of, you know, phrase, the covenant. And what does it mean, as Christopher says, to a specialist or uh, someone, you know, running A&E department or whatever? It means nothing. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now then, this week, the Royal Marines celebrated their 350th birthday. The Marines trace their origins back to 1664 and the Second Anglo-Dutch War. In the three and a half centuries since, they've seen action in the two world wars, of course, in Afghanistan, the Falklands, Crimea and the Napoleonic Wars. Our guest Major General Julian Thompson is a former Royal Marines officer who commanded three commando brigade during the Falklands War. And we're also joined now by Cassidy Little down the line, Lance Corporal Little, Royal Marines, and currently working for BFBS uh, as part of his resettlement before leaving the Royal Marines post-injury. Um, let's start with you, Julian Thompson. The Royal Marines have, as we just, you know, outlined very briefly there, an extremely rich background. It's a fairly obvious question, but what is it that makes them unique? Well, it's the training, which is terrific, and, and also the attitude, which is to be able to operate within chaos. You expect chaos. You expect to have to operate within chaos. They're trained to operate that way. And the, the other thing is that the Royal Marines will always take on a job uh, that's given to them, however impossible it seems to be. And in fact, one of the mottos that was given to us, actually, in, in unofficial, by, by the Duke of Edinburgh, was nothing impossible. That is actually 
what we pride ourselves on. And our training, our comradeship and our skill in battle makes us, in my opinion, unique. Things have changed through the years of the Royal Marines' existence. Sort of outline how things have changed, how they operate now that's different to past years. Well, past years, of course, they were first recruited by Charles II to go on board his warships to support the then-pressed seamen and to act as boarders and landing parties and so forth in produce a disciplined body of regulars in what could be described as a slightly undisciplined body of people, maybe. And, of course, that became out of fashion once you had steamships and long-range gunnery, so you then go from that to the commandos and landing craft, and the Marines' main tasks now are commandos and landing craft. And also, it's worth saying that the Royal Marines, out of a population of 6,000, provide over 45% of Britain's special forces... Uh, and the other 100,000 provide the rest. So without the Royal Marines, uh, the special force uh, of this country would be reduced by about half. Let's have a chat now with Lance Corporal Cassidy Little. Um, Cassidy, in terms of your career in the Royal Marines, just outline it for us, would you? Oh, I've got a short one. It's only about (laughs) 10 years, 9 years in the Royal Marines, um, as it's coming to an end now. And uh, two tours of Afghanistan, uh, Herrick 5 and Herrick 14. Uh, and obviously the the other um, awesome stuff like Norway and working with uh, other countries for their benefit and our benefit. I can't help but notice the accent, of course. Uh, You're not British, um, so how come you ended up joining the British Royal Marines? I'll stop you there. I am now British. Okay, sorry. Quite proudly British, so uh, I figured I'm going to give a leg to the country. You may as well become a citizen. Uh, so yes, I'm a British citizen now, um, but I originally came over here to do stand-up comedy, actually, and uh, turns out I wasn't particularly funny, so uh, <laughs> unfortunately... Uh, so, but you're Canadian uh, of... originally, aren't you? Absolutely, yes. So why not join the Canadian Marines? Uh, there are no Canadian Marines, uh, so that would be the, that would be the, the uh, obvious answer. Uh, no, you know what, I, I don't think I was quite ready to join the Armed Forces. Um, it, took a, it took the Royal Marines to, uh, to turn me into the... Uh, into the soldier that I am, rather than me thinking I was a soldier before joining. Of course, you've had a, a fairly tra- traumatic experience. You, you alluded to it there. You have lost a leg during your service. Um, what do you think now, as your time as a Royal Marine is, is concluding, what do you feel about the Royal Marines? Well, my opinion of the Royal Marines uh, has never changed and will never change. I owe the Royal Marines so much more than, than just a leg. They've given me a mindset, a mentality, and a, and a code of ethics that... that that cannot be that cannot be uploaded anywhere else. I mean, I am the man I am because of the Royal Marines, and and maybe I've got half as much athlete foot as I had, but uh, that doesn't change the fact that I love the Corps and always will love the Corps, and uh, and hence the reason celebrating the birthday is such a fun day. Thank you very much indeed, Cassidy Little. Christopher, briefly. Um, yeah, a late uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Lewin, summed it up neatly for me. He was talking about the Royal Marines. He said, I, I, I completely trust the Royal Marines. I don't have to think whether they can do the job or not. Mm. I just simply know that. And there was just one sort of light of view of that. Uh, uh, Cassidy talking about not a sense of humour. I can name six instructors that I came across at Royal Marine in Limston who weren't at all very funny. <laughs> Maybe it's... <laughs> I, I'm just thinking as I sort of sit here now, and, you know, we're talking about Afghanistan. I remember just swimming with Royal Marines in Kajaki Reservoir. That's something that's going to stick with me for an awfully long time. And they, they are... They are... Uh, something you picked up on, Julian, which I found fascinating. They are... 
because of their origins, I think, the way they started as in, in some ways controlling the, um, the ship's company, they do stand aside, don't they? Fascinating, guys. Thanks very much for being on the programme as ever. And that is just about it for this week. Many thanks to Christopher Lee and Julian Thompson. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter if you'd like to join the debate at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. But we leave you today with some of the people who've been reflecting on 13 years of British military involvement in Afghanistan. Wow. <laughs> you know, 13 years, a 13 year campaign. And it's all over, and we're out. We're out of Bastion, and that's it. There's no one there. Yeah, it's the end of an era. A lot of uh, lives lost, so it's not really sunk in yet, but I suppose it will. It is the politicians who don't have a clear view of what they want. They don't have a clear view of any kind of strategy, and they don't seem to want to take any kind of advice from the experts who actually do know what they're talking about, as in the military leaders themselves. I said it at the time when I was interviewed. I said it at the time. Somebody said, who do you blame? I said, I blame Gordon Brown because he didn't finance the armed forces as he did, should have for the best part of 10 years. I think if I could turn around and say to myself and to my family that, you know, what we've lost James for is he's made and he's helped towards making Afghanistan a safer place, which is what he totally believed in and why he went, um, then, yeah, that, would, that obviously would help. Um, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Afghanistan, without doubt, is a better place than it was in the in the aftermath of 9-11. It's a far better place. There is better governance. There is better education, particularly for girls. Uh, things are not perfect, of course. And there is a security problem, which uh, has not yet been resolved. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This 